had my sterilization almost three years ago. It'll be three years in May. And I feel great about it now. No regrets. <laughs> it's honestly, oh, man, I'm going to tell you this because this is this is unladylike. I know one of the questions for all of the guests of the Unladylike podcast is what's the most unladylike thing about you? And one of the most unladylike things about me is I really like to have sex out of wedlock. And I really like to have sex in monogamous relationships at a certain point, like many people, without condoms. And now I can do that and not worry. It's such a relief. Hey y'all, and welcome to Unladylike, the show that finds out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Kristen. I'm Caroline. And Kristen, before we prepped for today's episode, I honestly had no idea that tubal sterilization, aka getting your tubes tied, is the second most common form of birth control for women in the U.S. after the birth control pill. It's even more common than the IUDs that you and I have. That surprised me, too, because even though it's the baby blocker of choice for more than 20 percent of American women who use contraceptives, sterilization seems to never come up in conversations around birth control and reproductive rights. And today we're talking to someone who thinks it should. Bree Ripley is an independent radio producer and KUOW social media producer. A few years ago, Bree started an audio documentary project called Tie My Tubes, which was inspired by her own quest to get her tubes tied. Is it easy to get sterilized? Absolutely not. No. It's so hard to get sterilized. And that is the central, big, huge crux of this whole sterilization deal. Specifically, it's hard to get if you're young, single, and or child-free. This was something Brie heard over and over again while reporting out Tie My Tubes. She talked to more than 60 people for it, mostly women who sought the procedure and had varying rates of success with getting it, as well as a handful of doctors. So in this episode, Brie's going to take us along for her adventure, share what she discovered about why it's so difficult to choose your sterilization choice, and how it's impacted her life since. She's also going to introduce us to a few of those folks she interviewed. All to find out what happens when you definitely, no maybes, want to tie the fallopian knot. So why did you want to cover this topic and document it? Well, the truth is I have for a long time wanted to become sterilized, wanted to make it so that I couldn't get pregnant traditionally. And I've for all my life wanted to have a a lifestyle in my adult years that wasn't typical to the status quo. I guess I was just like a young rebel in a lot of ways, <laughs> just growing up, you know, surrounded by really awesome feminist rockers out here in the Pacific Northwest and learning about ways in which the patriarchy creeps into places where you least suspect it, like your doctor's office, really started to get me thinking. And so when I started asking about this at around age 17 uh, for doctors to sterilize me, and I kept getting no or doctors laughing 
I started thinking, wait, what's going on here? Is this that thing I keep hearing in feminist punk rock songs about the patriarchy (laughs) or the man trying to keep me from getting something that I want for my body? So when I decided that I wanted to be a radio producer, I was like, you know what? I'm going to make a story out of this. And I haven't heard one story on the radio about this yet. And I want to be the first. Let's start out with some of the basics. Uh, So when we talk about sterilization, we call it tube tying. They're not actually like tying tying your fallopian tubes like in a little like shoelace style (laughs) or something. There's no actual tying involved. Well, there used to be. There's a bunch of different ways to get one's tubes tied, so to speak. And and yeah, that's a euphemism. It's something that I think medical professionals and people who are interested in the procedure just wanted to call it something other than sterilization because sterilization is such a deeply historically taboo topic. And so getting your tubes tied typically happens in one of three ways. Like you cut the ends of the tubes and you get them put together with something kind of like a chip clip or you cut the ends of the tubes and you cauterize them. Or more often these days, we're seeing people get procedures like the one I had, which is complete removal of the fallopian tubes. Mm. Could you talk a little bit more, though, about the connotations of that word sterilization? Because it doesn't, you say it and it doesn't necessarily sound super inviting. No, I'm sure, like, for me, at least, I picture, like, a white room with, like, white sheets or a white curtain, and it just sounds really bad, like, the worst dentist office. Sterilization, <laughs> I guess, you know, it's it's shrouded in the history of eugenics, right? And I know we're going to get into that. But sterilization, like, also has this connotation to it that you will therefore not be able to have any children, And for a lot of people, that's true. But for a lot of others, that's not true. And that's because of procedures like IVF and so forth. Okay, Caroline, this is a really important point that I didn't even really understand before we talked to Brie. But tying your tubes does not affect the uterus. So people who get tubules aren't going to get pregnant from having unprotected sex, but they can potentially get pregnant through artificial insemination and can carry a pregnancy to term. Right. And now hysterectomies are another form of sterilization. That's where the uterus and sometimes the ovaries are removed. Typically, you get one because of a serious health condition, something like severe endometriosis, fibroids, cancer. So with hysterectomies, there's no chance of ever getting pregnant. But with our conversation today with Bree, we're going to focus specifically on tube tying. So throughout your own reporting, you spoke with lots of women who were seeking sterilization. What were some of the reasons that they gave for wanting the procedure? It was for a whole variety of different reasons, but I kind of boiled it down to three different profiles of people. Some of the reasons that they had were they came from a low-income family and they wanted to break the cycle of poverty. That was one that I heard a lot, that they thought that if they were in a position where they got pregnant too young or too early or if they got pregnant at all, that it would keep them from achieving some of the dreams, goals, aspirations that they had for themselves. And and that that was a big one. Another one that I heard was that birth control just wasn't working for them. And I identify most with that one. Birth control was giving them a myriad of side effects. And 
it became overwhelming. And they went through a whole like a whole laundry list of different types of things that they tried and they just weren't having it and they wanted a more permanent method that didn't require a foreign object implanted in their body. But the third group that's slightly more rare, but I met and talked to many people who identify as this, is somebody who doesn't ever want to have children. A person who identifies as a woman who doesn't believe that woman therefore means motherhood. They don't want to have kids, period. And sometimes they know this since they were kids. And this is what some of them had to say about what their doctors said to them when they asked to be sterilized. Basically, I was just told, absolutely not, no way, no how. You have to have have kids kids first. first. Well, what if you change your mind? And what if you meet a nice guy? He told me I didn't know what I was talking about and that I owed my husband a child. When I was 20, she told me to ask again at 23. Then at 23, she told me to ask again at 25. And she just looks at me and immediately passes judgment. She says, hmm, you're too young. Ugh. Oof, that like that resounding like you're too young mm-hmm. to know. Yeah, it's like where's the ceiling? I mean, are they finally gonna at menopause say, "Oh, well, you should have come two years ago," <laughs> right? Um, now, what about for women with kids? Does that make it any easier to get a sterilization? No, actually, I have talked to many women who have had at least one child, and they're still having a hard time. Oftentimes, doctors will tell women who are already moms that perhaps they'll want to have another kid later. But also, we have to remember that some hospitals refuse to perform sterilizations on women, such as Catholic hospitals. And a lot of times, the closest place to get a medical procedure is a religious-affiliated hospital, which means that they have rules about what kind of procedures that they'll give women. So, all right. So religion plays a factor, too. Um, More more patriarchy. More patriarchy. (laughs) But what about vasectomies? Like, we've been talking about people with uteruses and fallopian tubes, but are vasectomies as difficult to get for people without children? (laughs) Uh, No, not at all. I mean— Oh, my gosh. There's clinics for vasectomies. I mean, there is a clinic in my neighborhood. There's this doctor. He used to advertise on TV as Dr. Snip. And that's what the office is called. (laughs) Yeah, he hands out stickers to people. I actually have one on my external hard drive because I just think it's so funny. The sticker has like a little anti-symbol of sperm, which is hilarious. Now, there are lots of valid reasons why vasectomies are more easily available than tubal ligations. It's a simpler procedure, for one, and it costs less. But when you consider that only around 6% of American men have had a vasectomy, the ease of Dr. Snip's clinic starts to feel a little unfair. Yeah, and you've also got to consider the fact that tubals are more common among lower-income women of color, while vasectomies are more common among higher-income white men. Talk about some double standards. So I feel as if there is perhaps a sort of idea that men know what they want better than women. And that is a cultural phenomenon that we all know about the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about the whole regret factor. It sounds like doctors don't have those same regret anxieties about m- 
patients coming in requesting vasectomies versus patients coming in requesting sterilization. Mm-hmm. And also uh, the idea of a woman coming in and saying, I don't want to have kids is so much different than a man coming in and saying, I don't want to have kids. Yeah. It's like a woman being like, hi, I'm a monster versus a man being able to come in and say, hi, I'm a swinging independent bachelor. Yeah. I don't know why I'm picturing a martini. Totally. Or I want to be the CEO <laughs> of this company that I'm going to start up and I don't have time for children. Look at that man, that upstanding citizen. He's being responsible for his ejaculations. Oh, my gosh. Because a woman, again, is just like, oh, she's clearly a, an unfeeling monster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just really stuck on the phrase responsible for his ejaculations. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Caroline, you do have a way with words. <laughs> but, okay, so what about Bree's personal quest to get her tubes tied? Like, to be responsible for her ejaculation, so to speak. Wow. Okay, well, around 17, Bree started thinking about birth control. She really, really didn't want to get pregnant. I went on about a dozen different types of birth control. I mean, I've tried everything from the pill to the patch to the shot to the implant in the arm. I've had two different IUDs. I have tried a lot of birth control. A lot. I tried so many because every single time I showed up and was like, yo, this pill is making me have headaches. Or, hey, I just experienced my first migraine while taking this estrogen-based pill. Or, hey... Actually, the IUD is giving me a really rough time. I'm about to get a little personal here. I got monthly yeast infections on the IUD, and it was terrible. And later on, after a really bad period, my IUD actually came out. And I was really like, you know, I'm going to continue talking about sterilization every single time that I'm here, but I'll take what I can get birth control-wise. So how did you feel about the the permanence of sterilization? Like, was there any part of you that felt nervous at all about it? Kind of. I mean, of course, you're a little nervous about something that is going to be forever. But I was also excited. And so at the same time, I knew that I was going after something that a lot of people don't get or a lot of people have a really hard time getting. You listed three camps of people uh, in terms of who was seeking sterilizations. And you said that you identified most strongly with folks who traditional birth control wasn't working for them. You didn't say, though, that you were determined to be child-free. So I'm curious, um, in pursuing a sterilization procedure, do you still envision yourself as having a family, having kids? I changed my mind about that a lot. I was like, growing up, you know, I never really thought of myself as somebody who wanted to have kids, especially when I was experimenting with my God complex in that computer game, Sims. You remember that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, none of my Sims had kids. It was just too much work. In her teens and early 20s, Brie assumed she'd never really want kids. But the process of just seeking a sterilization really made her reflect about how she wanted to define family for herself. I was really interested in learning about stories of people who had untraditional families, like people who came from the foster system. I grew up neighbors with somebody who was adopted, and they were really open about that process and open about the difference between, like, a genetic family and chosen family and adoptive family. 
I also had an untraditional family. Like many people, my parents were divorced. And my stepdad was the parent who I connected with the most. And having the best relationship with somebody who wasn't my genetic parent made a huge impact on me. And I started to think, like, yeah, I I could see myself as somebody who could certainly have kids. I think that that's something that I could see for myself for sure. Just to be clear here, Bree doesn't feel wedded to the idea of giving birth to a biological child. For her, family doesn't have to mean biological children. And being a woman doesn't have to mean being a mother. But she's also not ruling out the option. That's why sterilization, for her, was the best form of contraception. It took pregnancy off the table, but it didn't necessarily rule out family. And that is exactly what Brie explained to about a dozen doctors, including Dr. Tracy Flum, an OBGYN in Seattle who she recorded an appointment with when she was 21. You know, it kind of bums me out that that a lot of people think that maybe like a quintessential part of womanhood is the ability to get pregnant. But that's just simply not for me. There's not many decisions you make at your age or any age mm-hmm. that are permanent. Except for student loans. <laughs> student loans are permanent, it's true. But, you, uh, but eventually over 100,000 years, you can pay them back. Yeah. But um, this is a different type of, mm-hmm. this is altogether different. Mm-hmm. And um, especially when, you know, we do have alternative methods that wouldn't be so permanent. They talked for a while in that appointment. Bree says she thinks Dr. Flum was just trying to make sure she was fully informed. But by the end, Brie finally got the answer she'd been looking for. So you want your tubes tight? Okay. That's not a problem. So what did it feel like to finally hear a doctor affirming your decision? Were you surprised to get a yes? I was really surprised, but I do think that having my microphone with me had something to do with that. Really? Why why do you think that that made the difference? (laughs) Well, you know... When you're put on the spot, sometimes it makes you think a little bit more critically. When we come back, Brie goes under. And we meet another woman in search of a tooth tie. Don't go away. I felt really excited on that day. It was actually the anniversary day of one of the Alien movies, the first ever Alien movie. (laughs) And since my last name is Ripley uh, and Lieutenant Ripley is like the main character in the Alien series, I just felt really empowered. I was like, this is some (laughs) badassery today. It's going on like cosmically. I'm ready for this. (laughs) Yeah, girl. We're back with Brie Ripley who finally got her tubes tied when she was 22. So how long did it take? The procedure itself took about 20 minutes. It was like get in there with a microscope through my belly button. It's a thing called key surgery. And then they inflated my belly with gas. So they made sure that they didn't touch or prod any of my organs in this similar area to where my fallopian tubes and ovaries are. And then they just did a couple of snips and pulled out my fallopian tubes. And they're about as long as your pinky finger. And it took 45 minutes total of me under general anesthesia. I woke up and I had a mild tummy ache from the gas, but I couldn't feel any pain in the region where 
they told me my fallopian tubes used to be. So how did recovery go? Recovery was amazing. As soon as the procedure was over, my best friend Jocelyn and I got me home, and my roommates, most of whom were dudes, were all waiting for me with pizza, (laughs) and we had a party. Uh, We watched Hey Arnold and sipped a little bit of pink champagne because I wasn't supposed to drink anything on painkillers, but I toasted. (laughs) I ate two slices of pizza because I wasn't supposed to eat that morning, and I was super hungry, and then I was told not to do anything uh, super physical for up to a month. And but I was like, you know, I didn't really have much pain um, walking around doing getting to work. Uh, I went for a jog within the first week and I was totally fine. Have there been any changes in terms of your menstrual cycles or hormones or anything like that? The way that I ovulate now is an egg goes out of my ovary every month, but it doesn't go anywhere. It just kind of bursts like a supernova. It's just floating. So, Caroline, I did have to do some Googling to figure out this whole supernova situation. And basically, the egg contains chemicals that will decompose it if it doesn't fertilize in time. And so those cells from the eggs are then just reabsorbed into Bree's immune system. And the circle of life and Bree's menstrual cycle continues. There's no way that that egg is going to be fertilized by any good sex that I'm having. (laughs) Well, so I'm curious, like, how did you feel sort of emotionally after the procedure? Like, was it just plain relief and happiness? How did you feel? I felt a lot of relief and I felt a lot of happiness, but I also felt all of a sudden, maybe it was because I was raised Catholic, this like guilt. Oh, like, this is so hard for people who identify as women to get like this procedure is so tough to get and I got it and you know I am a white woman who's educated able-bodied living in a super progressive city in Seattle like I'm not without the understanding of like my privilege in getting this procedure but it's also like really strange that I also met people who don't identify like I do who don't look like me who get denied sterilization on the regular. One of those people is Tequila Rivera. At 16, I knew that I did not want biological children. So I was thinking like, okay, 18, I'm going to get a boob job, and then I'm going to get my tubes tied, and I'm going to go off to college because I got accepted into University of um, Miami, and that's just that. Tequila is a 29-year-old writer, a full-spectrum doula, a reproductive justice advocate, and a mom. Brie talked to her a few years ago about her goal of getting sterilized. I went to the doctor, and the doctor's like, no, we're not tying your tubes. And I'm like, why the hell not? I'm 18. Like, I'm an adult. And the doctor was like, well, you're too young, and what if you meet a nice guy? So how did that make you feel to hear that? I cried for days because, I mean, I just knew that it was something wrong with the fact that I couldn't make a decision for myself, even as an adult. Like, I mean, 18 is an adult. So I'm thinking, okay, I can join the military and get blown up and shot at and get PTSD and all these other things, but I can't make reproductive health choices for myself. 
And so what what happened next in Tequila's path? Because she did have this vision for herself, you know, boob job, tubes tied, going to college, bing, bang, boom. Um, And the doctor tells her no. So what then happens with her her plans? So Tequila then decided to take the birth control option that made the most sense for her besides sterilization. And at the time, that's the NuvaRing. And despite using the NuvaRing, she got pregnant at age 23, and she didn't know what to do. So did she consider an abortion? She really agonized over the decision, but ultimately decided to keep the baby. It was a really, really tough call. But around the same time that she got pregnant with Jimmy, her grandmother was also uh, near her end of life. And because of that, a lot of Tequila's thinking was, you know, I as this life is going out of the world, I want to bring this life into the world. So after having her baby, was sterilization still on her mind at all? After having Jimmy, sterilization is absolutely still on Tequila's mind. I um, inquired about um, having my tubes tied again because I'm like, okay, maybe I can get them tied now because I have a child. I'm 20, I was 25 at the time. Maybe now it won't be so difficult. I got the same thing. Well, what if you change your mind and what if you meet a nice guy And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I met a nice guy and I have a baby by him and he's actually not that nice of a guy. A, where are all these nice guys you're talking about? And B, even if I did meet a nice guy, he better have his own damn kids because I don't want any more. I was told if you have another child and you reach 35, maybe we'll tie your tubes. So I have about nine years and one more child to go before I can possibly get them tied. I actually recently checked in with Tequila, and she's 29 now, and doctors still won't tie her tubes. I think it's one of those topics where people are just like, shh, don't talk about it. Like, don't talk about it and maybe it'll go away. Like, like why, why? Why do you think that is? I think because of this country's history with it. And, like, people just don't want to step into those murky waters. And, well, actually, I think that's kind of the issue for anything reproductive health related. Nobody wants to talk about abortion. Nobody wants to talk about periods. Nobody wants to talk about tube tying or contraception. But they'll damn sure talk about birth, 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 constantly give birth, reproduce. So... I don't know. I think anything that has to do with options, people don't want to talk about. How does it feel to be denied sterilization as a woman of color? It's kind of like a it's it's a double slap in the face because it's like for years and years and years, you're sterilizing women of color against their will. But you have one here that's like, hey, I kind of want to have it done. And you're like, no, you no, you can't. And you're like, but what about, doesn't matter. No, you still can't. It's just, it's really frustrating and it's irritating and it's just, I can't even think of words to describe how frustrating it is. That history 
the years and years of sterilizing women of color against their will, it's real. And it's real fucked up. When we come back, we'll unpack why we so rarely talk about that history when we talk about reproductive rights. Stick around. We're back with Bree Ripley, creator of the Time My Tubes audio documentary project. So even though birth control and abortion access get all the attention when we talk about reproductive rights, forced sterilization was one of the first ways the government really started fucking with our uteruses. Yeah, eugenics was all the rage in early 20th century America, and more than 30 states passed laws that allowed men and women alike to be forcibly sterilized on the basis of mental disorders, physical disabilities, poverty, and or race. Then, in 1927, the Supreme Court's ruling in Buck v. Bell upheld the practice, opening the legal sterilization floodgates. And that made it legally okay to forcibly sterilize, quote-unquote, unfit women. And those are women with mental disabilities or incarcerated women. And the really fucked up thing about that is it's never actually been officially overturned. What? Yeah. Hmm. I gotta, like, leave the studio and go fuck some shit up. (laughs) It's insane. And I've talked to women who reference like campaigns in Texas towns or usually like Bible Belt towns where there's like billboard campaigns asking women to come get sterilized. And it's usually in low income communities. And it's like, we'll pay you a a flat fee to come in and get sterilized. And their thinking when it comes to that is only women who are addicted to drugs will show up and accept the money. And so we're actually doing a service to society by sterilizing these women so that they don't have children, which is super eugenics-y and is super fucked. Also super fucked, in 1964, President Johnson's so-called War on Poverty Plan included federal funding to encourage or just straight-up coerce women on welfare to get sterilized. In the South, it was more common for doctors to just sterilize Black women without their knowledge after childbirth. This was so common, in fact, it was nicknamed the Mississippi Appendectomy. Why do you think that this history around forced sterilizations is not a more common and well-known part of our, like, feminist reproductive rights history? I feel like all we ever really hear about is Roe v. Wade and abortion, and yet there is this whole other parallel history that often gets left out. Yeah, like the forced sterilization of indigenous or native women or the forced sterilization of Puerto Rican women in the 1960s through the 1970s. All of this is not in the forefront of our education on reproduction. It's so weird. But when you think about it, like, how often do you hear about this stuff in public school to begin with? It's already pretty risky to have sex education in public schools. I mean, if you're going to throw in all of this terrible stuff that was invented by white patriarchal men, it might make the white patriarchal men in charge of public school look a little shady, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, Brie, when I was researching um, sterilization, uh, something that I came across 
that that is new to me was something called the 120 rule. So me, while all of this forced sterilization is going on, there's also social pressure um, to try to keep wealthy white women from getting sterilized. And this 120 rule is the notion that women shouldn't be granted sterilization unless their age multiplied by their number of children equaled at least 120. This is a really obvious math fact, but uh, <laughs> but that means that my age times zero will never be 120. So you always like it requires you to already have had. Totally. Kids. Totally. Yeah. I'm p- plugging in a couple of numbers in my calculator right now. Uh, if you're age 30 and you have three kids, 90. If you're age 40 what? and you have two kids, 80. Like, what? What's going on? I It doesn't make sense. And the thing about the 120 rule is that it's not like it was some law set in stone written down in a book somewhere, but it was a very real and deeply entrenched concept in the medical community. Like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists supported this concept and this idea and this practice through the 1960s. It wasn't until 1969 in like the thick of the fight for Roe v. Wade and other reproductive rights that medical professionals finally backed off of pushing the idea of the 120 rule. And what's interesting is like tequila, you know, nobody cited the 120 rule to her, but it's kind of essentially what she's hearing from doctors. Mm, Yeah, I've talked to a lot of OBGYNs about the 120 rule, and many have told me that this isn't a legit thing that they consider when they're practicing, and it's not really something that they even discuss in school, and thank goodness for that. But If it's still not in practice, it doesn't mean that its legacy doesn't live on. It's just one of those absurd pieces of medicinal doctrine that still lives on, I guess, and it's a shame. But y'all, it's not all bad news. In the 1970s, women's reproductive rights finally got a seat at the table. Unmarried women won the right to use birth control in 1972, and in 1973, Roe v. Wade legalized abortion. Sterilization by choice was the next major reproductive victory women won in 1974 with the passage of the Voluntary Sterilization Act. This act states that sterilization may be performed on a consenting woman 21 or over regardless of marital status or on a consenting minor with parental approval. So hello, we have an act, an act of 1974. Why are doctors still telling women like tequila no? I'm pretty certain it is that regret part where doctors are concerned that women are going to regret this decision later. There's a little bit of the do no harm factor that doctors are trained to respect in medicine. Like they don't want to do any harm on the patient, but then they're projecting instead this fear that they're going to regret it and therefore that perhaps is going to be some harm. I talked to one doctor about this. I think all it takes is one anecdote of one person who called you regretting that they had their tubal. And I do think it can make people nervous. So now the potential is that your your mindset goes to, well, that person regretted their tubal. I'm never doing tubals on people who've never had babies before again. Even though that's just unscientific and, and in, in a lot of ways inappropriate. 
totally inappropriate. That's Dr. Sarah Pentlicky, by the way. She's a badass OBGYN here in Seattle, and she works for Planned Parenthood. I talked to her about why doctors make the choices they do and how she approaches conversations about sterilization with her own patients. And just FYI, she's speaking to me off the clock and not in any official capacity as a Planned Parenthood spokesperson. But Dr. Pentlicky thinks that sterilization is something that doctors talk less and less about with their patients. I do think people even are exploring it less because we do have things like IUDs and implants that are as effective as tubules. And not really having the the more rich conversation of why that still may not be the right choice for someone. What you're doing in those moments a lot of times is actually putting the burden back on the patient to accept this other form of contraception that they didn't actually want to make me feel better that I don't have to do a tubal on a 21-year-old. And that is even sort of the bigger theme that when you're doing things that make you feel better, that's when you need to, like— examine it a little bit more. So, Brie, do you think there's any validity to doctors' concerns about regret, especially when it comes to younger folks seeking a permanent procedure and a surgery? I think that there's a little bit, but I think that most importantly, it's imperative that a patient get something called informed consent when they're in an office asking for something that's permanent, like sterilization. And what informed consent is, is explaining and confirming and understanding all of the risks, benefits, and alternatives to something. So it's knowing that a person has made a particular decision with the absolute best information available, and that should always come from a medical professional without projecting opinions or feelings about that information. So if a medical professional is ever suggesting or projecting onto somebody that they might regret something, that's not giving them informed consent. But making sure that they understand that this is a permanent, unreversible procedure that does have risks and here are the risks is absolutely key. Those risks include bleeding and infection, as well as ectopic pregnancy. But the big one that doctors seem to be most concerned about? Regret. And this isn't necessarily just some patriarchal pro-birth assumption that doctors are projecting onto younger patients. Because studies do support the idea that younger women, particularly young moms who are poorer and less educated, are likelier to experience sterilization regret. And that education doesn't just have to do with getting a diploma, right? It also has a lot to do with how informed you are about the procedure itself. There was one survey of women who'd been sterilized, and more than a third of them thought that the fallopian tubes would grow back or just naturally become unblocked over time. But, I mean, even when we consider those stats, like, doctors' fear of possible regret still seems like a shady reason to deny sterilization. It also seems like regret in particular has been weaponized as a double-edged sword against women's reproductive justice because it is used to discourage women not only from getting sterilized, but it is also the go-to argument that anti-abortionists use to say that abortion shouldn't be legal. So it's like, okay, you you don't want to sterilize me because I'll regret that. You don't want to offer me abortion because I'll regret that. Like where's the win here? Like, why are we, are we a little over-obsessed with the potential of female regret? 
Right. Like, why can't you let me be culpable for my own regret, potentially? And also, side note, regret is not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that either way, it is that education, that informed consent piece of the puzzle that is so critical. Like, whatever your ultimate end decision as a patient is, it's having the full story that truly empowers you to be able to make that choice. Absolutely. Options are empowering. And it's okay to tell people what their other options are. But it's not okay to not give somebody what they want when they are of the age of 18, the age of informed consent. So do you have any advice out there for listeners who might want to get their tubes tied for any of these various reasons we've talked about? I think showing up and saying that you know about the 120 rule, that you know about the Sterilization Act from the 70s, that you listen to an episode of the Unladylike podcast and you're ready to talk <laughs> about this. And maybe even if you're like me, taking out your cell phone and hitting record on your recorder app, that all might do the trick. And I really, really hope it does. I also asked Tequila for her advice. I would say keep trying because, I mean, I have heard of, of women who've been successful in getting their tubes tied um, at a young age without having any kids, but it's, they're few and far between. So I don't know. I would say just keep trying, but I'm not going to keep trying because it's so exhausting. That's so hypocritical to say. But No, it's not. You work 85 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> But, I mean, if you really want it done, fight, 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 fight. I wish it didn't have to be a fight. I know. Me too. I wish that, like, it was as easy as as anything. Uh, getting plastic surgery, getting LASIK eye surgery. I, I, I'm also hopeful that this can start expanding the reproductive conversation around like trust women. We always say that in terms of abortion rights, trust women. Um, and I think it's time to extend that mantra to sterilization as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Brie. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a delight. so grateful to Brie, who shared her work with us today. And we're going to have links to her Tie My Tubes Facebook page on our site, unladylike.co. And I do think it's worth noting that her KUOW editor is Jeannie Yandel, co-host of Battle Tactics for Your Sex's Workplace, who is featured on our Workplace Sexism show. Ugh, rad ladies in Seattle, what's up? To learn more about reproductive rights, we've got a whole chapter in our book on Ladylike, A Field Guide to Smashing the Patriarchy and Claiming Your Space. We shout out trailblazers like Fannie Lou Hamer, who was forcibly sterilized herself, and reproductive justice leader Loretta Ross. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Have you pursued sterilization as a form of birth control? How'd it go? Email us at hello at unladylike.co or find us on social at unladylike media. Also, y'all, we have a new place to hang out. We just launched an Unladylike Facebook group. This is a place where you can talk to us and to each other. 
We're thinking of it as an online space for the unladylike community to get to know each other, swap resources, horror stories of sexism and patriarchy, you know, and also some fun stuff. So join us. Just search for Unladylike on Facebook and look for the group with our middle finger logo. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor, and Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Jenny Radlett. Special thanks to KUOW. We are your hosts, Kristen Conger and Caroline Urban. Next week, we've heard about women's rage, but what about our sadness? And I started to do really um, cool stuff like inviting him over and then just reading a book of Mary Oliver poetry and crying, which is a real turn on for every man. <laughs> Got to tell you, I'm like, do you want to watch me cry for 45 minutes? We're going to get up close and personal with feeling our feelings. So do not miss it. Make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. If anything, maybe Dr. Snip would just open up like a women's branch. (laughs) Come on, Dr. Snip. What are you waiting for? Come on. Oh, yeah. The patriarchy to be smashed. (laughs) That's what. Stitcher.